Earlier this past decade, the Philadelphia 76ers were a mediocre team with no real hope of winning an NBA championship. Then, in 2013, they hired Sam Hinkie to be their general manager. He was a Stanford MBA, a smart guy, and the hope was he would transform this team from blah to a powerhouse. Hinkie certainly wanted to do that, but he made clear in his first press conference that championship glory would take some time. It would mean letting the team tank so they could hopefully land a superstar draft pick in a future draft. Over the next three years, the Philadelphia 76ers became one of the worst teams in NBA history. In fact, in Hinkie's third season, the team only won 10 games out of 82. That's the second worst record in NBA history. Other owners of NBA teams began to call for his ouster because it was bad for business. Trust in the long game did not pay off in their minds. But there were a faithful few who believed in Hinky's patient methodology, a minority who put their trust in his method, believing that in the end, there would be championship glory and honor for their favorite team. Those true believers were often heard chanting at 76ers games, trust the process. Well, today, the 76ers are one of the best teams in the NBA. And it seems that Hinky's methodology, this trust the process long game, has paid off. Welcome to the second session of our Psalm study, Truthful Speech as Common Prayer. In this session, we'll be looking at an overview of the Psalms of Wisdom, and we'll see how they too teach us who pray them how to trust the process of the way of wisdom, even perhaps especially when that way doesn't seem that profitable and doesn't seem to lead to flourishing or being fully alive. But let's begin with a brief review of what we said last time about these Psalms of Wisdom, that they reveal to us a kind of spiritual physics that's at work in our lives, that there are spiritual laws that govern our lives, just as there are natural laws that govern the universe, like gravity, and that wisdom is learning how to live into those laws, in tune with the way God has designed life to work best. So, what are the ways God has designed life to work best? In other words, what is wisdom according to the Psalms of Wisdom, but also more broadly, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament? We know from Proverbs 1-7 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And as you may have heard before, fear in this context means something like awe and wonder, trust. It's the language of worship. We see this in Psalm 33, where we read, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Here you can see this connection between the fear of the Lord and awe. And what is that awe in reference to? It's that God speaks and things happen. He is completely other and different from His creation. This awe for God is rooted in that Genesis image of the Creator God who brings order to chaos simply by speaking a word. He's worthy of our awe and reverence. 
Now, for us Christians, this fear of the Lord, this kind of awe-filled and trusting relationship to God, comes through an encounter with God in Christ. Through experiencing God as Redeemer through Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, as well as Creator. This relationship of awe and trust through Christ is essential to praying these psalms faithfully. As the Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke says, Praying the psalms faithfully now becomes expressive of being in Christ. A personal encounter with God is essential for all faithful commentary on the meaning of the psalms. But interestingly, the word used in the Old Testament for the wise one also has a very here and now focus. It means fearing the Lord. It means having this right relationship to Him. But that Hebrew word hakam means to live skillfully, suggesting that wisdom is utterly practical. It has to do with how we live here and now, not just what we believe, not just with our inner posture towards God. And expanding our view more broadly, let's look at some other Old Testament wisdom literature. And in this case, in particular, some verses from Proverbs 3 to see how this works. In Proverbs 3, we read, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not accuse anyone for no reason when they have done you no harm. Do not envy the violent or choose any of their ways. In other words, the one who fears God does not content himself or herself, as we said in our last session, with simply the right inner posture toward God, with ideas about God, having good ideas about God, or good discussions about God, even good ideas about salvation, grace, and what Jesus Christ means to us. No, the wise person seeks to live out that reverence, that awe, that trust skillfully in how he treats his neighbor. In refraining from violence, as we see here in Proverbs 3, or in patience as a way to get what we want when we want it. As we enter the Psalms as our prayer book, we are forced to recognize that those who revere, trust, and follow the living God revealed in Christ must be prepared to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. They must be prepared to see that the fear of the Lord has this vertical dimension, yes, this reverence and trust for God, but also a horizontal one, which is our love for our neighbor and how we live out that fear. So if we're to learn to pray the Psalms, we have to begin here with these Psalms of wisdom, with the fear of the Lord. That is an encounter with the triune God of Holy Scripture, but an encounter that leads to living skillfully. Again, the Psalms resist our attempts to turn them into statements or discussions about God, if we're going to engage the Psalms as they have been handed down to us, we must begin with the fear of the Lord that has very real consequences for how we live our lives. So now that we've defined the kind of wisdom the wisdom Psalms are talking about, 
Let's take a bird's eye view of Psalm 1 as a template for thinking a little deeper about the wisdom psalms. And because it's short, let's read it together. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. While fearing and trusting in God is where we start on our journey of praying the Psalms, as I said in our first session, a major theme of these wisdom Psalms and wisdom literature in general is this contrast between the wise and the righteous on one hand and the wicked and the foolish on the other. Here in Psalm 1, we have probably one of the best expressions of this theme. It's what the Old Testament scholar John Walton calls the retribution principle. Simply put, the retribution principle was the belief that the righteous or the wise will prosper for living righteously, and the wicked or the foolish person will experience suffering and ultimately destruction for their unrighteous living. Now, as modern people, we may know that things don't always work out this way. And in fact, the Old Testament itself acknowledges this in, for example, the book of Job. But here in this introduction to the Psalms, not just actually the wisdom Psalms, but to the entire Psalter, here in Psalm 1, we have a necessary foundation from which we can begin praying the Psalms. We need to know and be able to expect blessing when we live according to the ways God says life works best. As I mentioned in our last session, the gods of ancient Israel's neighbors, and I mentioned Babylon last time, their gods were arbitrary in their dealings with humankind. Humans were an afterthought to these gods. Humans were slaves. These gods did not condescend to reveal themselves or their will to their creatures. Thus, humans were left to figure it out on their own, to appease these gods with sacrifices or manipulate them with offerings to get what was needed or what was wanted. But these humans could never be quite sure if they were on the god's good side or bad side. But not Israel's god. He graciously reveals his law and in doing so discloses his character in it. He didn't keep himself from his people, but he defined himself for them and revealed how life could be lived best and how they could live out their mission to be his image bearers in the world. This is why the righteous person, the wise one, as it says in verse two, delights and meditates on the law of the Lord. It is God's gracious revelation of his character, and it gives those who meditate on it, in the words of Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, a givenness to be relied on. That is, God provides stability for us by clearly defining what we can expect 
when he is trusted and feared and his law is loved. We don't have to wonder who this God is or what he expects. He clearly reveals it to us in the word written and in the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. Now, as a way to further illustrate this, at one point in Israel's history, God's people forgot this and began living like the other nations around them, more focused on rituals and practices meant to grab God's attention, believing that this to be the avenue through which blessing came. This would be the way through which they would finally flourish and be fully alive, as though Yahweh, their God, was a pagan God who didn't care about them and was not involved in their day-to-day -day lives, as though he had not already revealed his will to them and how to find a life of flourishing. So in Isaiah 58, Israel comes to God and they ask, why have we fasted and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? In other words, why have we done all these things and not received blessing? Why have we done these things and not yet flourished? And what does God tell them in response? He tells them, you've got it all wrong. He says, while you fast, you oppress your employees. While you fast, you quarrel and you fight with each other. And finally, he says, this kind of fast that you, my people, are engaging in doesn't cause me to hear you. That is, it doesn't cause flourishing to come about. It doesn't cause you to be fully alive. And then this is what God says. Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of God shall be your rear guard. God's people had forgotten their fear of him. They had begun trusting in other things and other gods. And consequently, they had forgotten that God had already revealed to them already shown them the way to be fully alive, the way of blessing, the way that he could be their rear guard, the way that they could flourish like that tree in Psalm 1 next to flowing water. If they wanted to receive blessing, they had to trust the process that God had already set forth in his law. That law, as we already said, that reveals his character, it revealed how his people were to relate to him and to each other and to their neighbors. They had forgotten, as it says in Leviticus 19, do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another, do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. This kind of living skillfully was a working out of that fear of the Lord. This treating your neighbor well, treating them as you would want to be treated yourself. It was their way of imaging God in the world. 
imagining God to be like the other pagan deities that surrounded them. God's people forgot that blessing, being fully alive, came through trusting God's method, that is, the way already revealed in His law that He had graciously given them. And for us who pray these psalms, we actually have one who has gone before us, who is the truly righteous one pictured in this psalm, Psalm 1. And of course, that's Jesus. He is the ultimate righteous and wise one that this psalm is about. If this is true, then we should not be surprised to see Jesus in his lifetime, in his ministry, trusting the process even if that meant temporary loss and even death. I think especially of John 6, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, when the people came and tried to make him king by force, Jesus simply slipped away to be alone. He did the opposite of what we might do given that opportunity. This was not the way set out for him by his Father, and in fact, the way set out for him by his father in the temporary would look like loss. It would be full, as I said last time, of conflict, enemies, and eventually death in the most shameful way possible on the cross. But he trusted that process. It appeared to be the way of defeat and destruction. But because he trusted his father, because his father knew him, because his father knew his way, as it says in the last verse of Psalm 1, Jesus revealed to us what true fear of the Lord looked like. And in the end, it led to Jesus's flourishing, that is, the resurrection. And that's the same promise that all of us who wish to pray this psalm and all the other psalms have when we enter the Psalter as our prayer book.